Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And a very special guest, which is a long time coming, Barnabas and I, back in the day, OG Barnabas, who didn't bother to show up for our 300th episode, but whatever. (laughs) Uh, We talked multiple times about having Andy Crouch on. And he's finally here. Well, I think Andy's stipulation was as long as Barnabas is not on the podcast, he would come. He would yeah. join us. Yes, yeah, so I think just took us as many episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Andy, for being on the podcast with us. <laughs> that is not true, and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love Barnabas. We, uh, now, if you guys don't know who Andy Crouch is, I'm sure you've heard of you his don't books. read. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you probably, I mean, the tech. If you have children. You have probably had the question about, you know, what should we do about cell phones and technology and all that stuff. And, and Andy's recent book, The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place, is increasingly becoming, I believe, the standard that families should be reading. It's research-based, which Very we love. Too, yeah, yeah uh, in order to how to just address technology and family. So he's written that. He's written Strong and Weak. He is the partner for theology and culture at Praxis. Thank you and welcome, Andy, to, uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Really glad to be here. The way I address uh, technology, by the way, is my children think that the Wii is the most advanced gaming system that there is. <laughs> <laughs> they do. And they love it. Uh, it's, yeah, you can I mean, only fool for kids. them for so long is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, they'll somehow uh, break out of the house and, and figure out what's up. But yeah, until that point in time, the Wii is awesome. <laughs> so, Andy, we are going to be asking your standard five questions. And man, we are so interested to hear what you uh, have to say about all that. But before we get started, mm. uh, for all of our listeners, uh, give us the, you know, the high level overview of the TechWise family and, and, you know, just kind of the research, what that is, especially for those who have not read the book yet. And then sure. uh, give us some practicals of how you have implemented it. Cause I just love the <laughs> rhythm that you talk about in your book. Yeah. Yeah. This was a collaboration with Barna Group who do really uh, great uh, research, kind of market research in a sense, or broadly uh, social science research. Um, uh, that They're so interesting because they, they come at it as Christians, but they're, many of their clients are broader than just church organizations. So they have this incredible kind of overview of what's happening in culture. And they do a lot of research on young people. And uh, they realized in the research they were doing that technology was becoming like the primary pressure and pain point for parents. And um, so my friends there, um, David and and, uh, Roxy, their editor, approached me and said, would you write a book with us about technology and family Mm. life specifically? So Barna did a bunch of new research on that. I mean, there's so many interesting things like uh, that, uh, like 85% of all Americans now go to bed with their phones, including uh, 12 and 13 year olds. (laughs) So we're all sleeping with these devices now. Mm. Um, Really interesting findings about like how many of us end up having them at the dinner table, even when we think we don't do that, we actually do it. And maybe the most amazing finding, which is when you ask uh, teenagers, What's the one thing that if you could change anything in your relationship with your parents, what would what would you want to change? The most common answer teenagers give is they say, I wish my parents would spend less time on their devices and more time talking to me. Ouch. So, 
yeah. So uh, when I'm introducing this book, I say, you know, I wrote, I'm, I wrote this book, The TechWise Family, and people think, oh, it's about screen time limits for kids. And it's actually not really about any of those things. It's not just about screens because um, I actually think there's a much bigger story of technology in our culture. And it, it goes way back beyond the iPhone and mm. before the iPhone, even before the television in some way. It's about the whole role that devices now play in our lives um, in a way that they didn't uh, even just one generation ago my, at the beginning of my parents' lifetime. Um, it's not about limits because I think limiting limits is like a terrible way to parent. <laughs> it's yeah. the worst, it's the worst part of parenting is setting limits and you have to do some of that. But if that's going to be our approach to technology, we're, we're frankly going to end up a bunch of legalists who are trying to like enforce limits all the time. Yeah. And I think it has to start not with limits, but with desire. What do we really want for our lives? Both, uh, you know, grownups and kids. And then, uh, it's not about screens and not about limits and it's not, actually about the kids. It's about all of us and especially those of us who are allegedly the grownups who are often the most um, uh, kind of uh, dis disoriented uh, in how much we're using these things without even realizing it yeah. and what that's doing to our relationship and our families. That's so good. So, that's yeah, so, good. so I talk about you know, ways we can have better, um, really have what we want, what, what we truly desire in our families. Um, yeah, I talk about... Uh, this rhythm that you mentioned, Daniel, of um, one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, uh, at the very minimum. One hour a day for us, that's staring time. One day a week for our family, it's Sunday. And then one week a year for, for us, we get to take actually two weeks of, of vacation. Not everyone gets that, but we do. And we turn everything with an off switch. It gets turned off for that hour, that day, and that week. Okay. And uh, even just simple things like that um, make a really big difference in how these devices work and don't work in our lives. That's fantastic. And what a great overview. And if you have not picked up a book, We'll stick it in the show notes, a link, but and it is a must read if you have kids and, mm. and even if you don't have kids and you're, you're trying to figure out your, the, the role of technology in your life, it's a great read. I love that. Mm. And it's super practical and super doable as well. So mm. it's just, yeah, it's just important. I mean, boundaries are something that are important in general and mm -hmm. the boundaries that are, I mean, that make sense, first of all. And, yeah. uh, and boundaries that just kind of establish good guidelines for our kids without being completely overbearing. Yes. And, and the, I think the best decisions are all things that we all do together as a family. So it's not one set of rules for the kids and another for the parents. But, you know, for example, in our family, as I was reading this research, I realized, uh, we, my wife and I had been taking our phones, uh, not to bed literally, but not to our bedside table. And we realized this is not helping in any way. <laughs> so we all park our phones downstairs before we go to bed. The whole family does. And that makes it so much easier, especially with teenagers, which is the stage that we were at when we made that decision, um, you know, not to be saying, well, here's the rules for you, but mom and dad get to, you know, go watch Netflix in their bedroom. Mm. <laughs> no, no, we all want a life that has these healthy rhythms and we're going to do it together. And that changes everything when you do it that way. All right. Well, uh, I know from following you that you are a reader uh, hmm. and that you're out and about quite a bit and learning from people. So uh, I'm excited to ask you, the first question, who are you learning from right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned reading. I, uh, so I did, I knew this question was coming because I looked up what you guys ask. Uh, and 
And the, I am I, probably the person I'm learning from the most right now is no longer with us in the flesh, but uh, his books, his book is still around. It's a, not someone you may have heard of, but he's an economist named Karl Polanyi, um, okay. Hungarian American economist who wrote a book called The Great Transformation in 1942, I think. He wrote it in the 40s. Um, and he, he's basically looking at what gave us the modern world mm. economically. And it is a stunning book about really the deep history of technology, which I'm continuing to write about. You know, I started with this little book about technology and family, but my next book is about really what technology has done to all of us, not just to families. And it's a bigger picture book. That's fantastic. Um, when does when it come and, out? Uh, uh, well, I'll have to write it first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm researching and writing the book proposal. Actually, as as we're talking, that's kind of one of my current pieces of work. And then in 2019, uh, I'll be writing it, and so it'll it should be out in 2020 yeah. if I if I succeed that's in good. writing it. I'll be looking forward to um, that. Yeah, the great transformation. So. I am. I am reading a lot. I'm reading a lot of old stuff. I'm reading Peter Brown on on uh, the early church and money and wealth uh, in the early church. I, I actually have come to think uh, this whole story of technology is actually a story of mammon, uh, the the power of money in human affairs. And so I'm reading a lot about money. Wow. Uh, I read a lot of Augustine on money recently. Um, but the other the other way I'm learning is actually, I was thinking about three communities that I'm part of that I feel like are where my deepest learning is happening. And I'll just briefly describe them. If you want to hear more, you can ask, but the first is a group called the repentance project, um, which is a, a, a grand sounding name for a very simple thing. It's a group of about 20 people. All of us are leaders in some way, men and women, um, white and black who are traveling together around the United States on pilgrimages to significant places in the history of slavery, uh, white supremacy, and racism in the United States. And we go on these pilgrimages like to the James River in Richmond, where um, about a third of, of enslaved Africans landed uh, docked uh, in Richmond and then went to the slave market there. Um to New Orleans, to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, to uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. And we just go on these trips together, experience whatever we experience, and then pray through what we've <laughs> all been through. And it's just been incredible. Um, the second group is called the Eulogists, and uh, that's a group that meets once a year only for a very intensive three days and uh, it's eight guys and we go somewhere where we can be really focused together and just share as deeply as we possibly can about our lives so that there will be someone who can give a eulogy at our funerals wow. who will kind of know us, know us well enough to be able to give a truthful eulogy, not a flattering one, just tell the truth and understands kind of what our lives are about, what our struggles are, what our joys are. Um, that group I learn a ton from. And then at Praxis, we have this group called Entrepreneurs in Residence, which is right now seven, well, seven ventures, nine people. We have two married couples uh, involved. Um, but people who have built significant things, uh, significant businesses, significant nonprofits, and then exited those and are now thinking about their next thing. And they come to us for a year to sort of mutually learn. Mm. So I'm learning about cryptocurrency with one of our folks. I'm learning about international development with another 
group. I'm learning about the future of work and the automation economy with another uh, amazing uh, one of our entrepreneurs and residents. And it's just like this crash course in all the most significant trends of our time with wow. people who have really lived through them and are trying to think as Christians about them. So those are my three learning communities right now. It's really interesting uh, when you start to talk about money, you know, cryptocurrency is something that is present. Um, I mean, people yes. think of it as crashing like, you know, a year or so ago, but I think it's only right, later right, before right. it comes back around again. Oh, completely. Bitcoin. It, there may be a number of reasons Bitcoin is going to go away. Uh, I don't think it's viable in the long term, but cryptocurrency, the underlying kind of structure is is absolutely here to stay and may end up being really significant. It's so hard to say this early in the technology, but it's it's definitely not it's not going away. So I I get the I get the last group because that comes out of what you're <laughs> the work that you're doing at Praxis, but the eulogists really <laughs> caught my attention. Like, how did that come about? It's sobering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. That's a, <laughs> it intentionally chose a name. Like, I mean, it came about because a couple of us were honestly desperate for friendship and accountability. And pretty much everyone in this group and the membership is not, um, is not, public. I mean, uh, nothing mm -hmm. about it is public except the very few things I'm going to tell you because we really need to keep it totally confidential for it to work. But it's all people who have significant leadership responsibilities. And, and one of the things about being a public person is lots of people know you and no one knows you. <laughs> yep. And your deepest vulnerabilities often are things that you can't readily talk about in the primary setting of your leadership, uh, whether it's for reasons of confidentiality or there's just many, many reasons that you need a group of people who are separate from your day-to-day -day life, but who understand your day-to-day -day life. Mm. So, uh, and it's, uh, it's a model that's proven to work. This is sponsored by uh, Leighton Ford Ministries. Leighton Ford was one of Billy Graham's associates. He's Billy Graham's um, son-in-law, if I'm remembering the family connection correctly. Um, and uh, Leighton in the kind of second half of his life had this real vision for sponsoring what they, what he calls peer learning communities and mm. or peer mentoring communities. So we're just one of many or of these little groups that Leighton Ford Ministries sponsors that are self-run, uh, but all have this mission of, of just deep honesty, deep learning with and about one another in the presence of Christ. That's fantastic. So Andy, um, our, our second question really dives into your leadership uh, either, and you can answer for you yourself or your team around you. Uh, what is that main point of emphasis right now? I'm thinking about the team that I'm part of, um, which I just joined in a formal way a year ago at Praxis. So I'm a partner at Praxis. There's uh, I think six of us who have that kind of leadership role um, in this organization that works with, with entrepreneurs uh, who, who are Christians who want to bring their faith like deeply, fully to bear mm. on on what they're doing. Um, and and actually what we're thinking about is <laughs> how you have growth without sacrificing depth. Um we have built everything we do on very intensive relationships. Uh, I mentioned we work with seven uh, entrepreneurs in residence, and then we work with 12 uh, 
entrepreneurial fellows who are who are at the startup stages of their lives. The entrepreneurs and residents have have gone been through this, but then we have this younger group of Praxis fellows. Um, 12 for-profit, 12 not-for-profit. So a total of, you know, in a sense, 31 people total that the organization works with in any given year uh, in an intensive way. Okay. And at the same time, um, we have experienced a great deal of uh, favor, of interest in what we're doing. And so we're growing very fast in terms of how many people want to connect with what we're doing and and value what we're doing, whether that's people who want to financially support it or people who want to be part of the community, uh, opportunities to do new things. And the question of how you do the right new things and grow in the right ways without giving up the depth that seems to me to be the way of Jesus. <laughs> in other words, like Jesus, you know, was announcing the kingdom of God, which is a pretty large scale operation, like mm-hmm. the reign of God over all peoples, all ethnicities, all tribes, all, you know, all that, that whole list from Revelation. And yet Jesus does it by spending, I guess, three years of active ministry with essentially 12 people. There were also women who traveled with him and so forth. But, you know, there's not uh, there's not more than 120 people in the upper room uh, on in the room on the day of Pentecost. Right. That's Jesus. Total output is 120 people. Yeah. And and uh, and in our modern world, it's so easy to feel like you're doing something bigger than that. Like, you know, we I mean, we have. 300 people at a summit that we do every spring uh, for Praxis. So we're already doing better than Jesus, right? (laughs) We're way scaling past you, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe. Um, So I, I think we're really wrestling with how do we legitimately meet demand? How do we disentangle legitimate demand from either our own ambition or others sort of ambitions that we can't possibly fulfill? And how do we keep it as deep as the way of Jesus is? Um, and th- this is what we're trying to sort out as we as we try to responsibly grow. I guess I would say. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, there. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out what kind of follow up question to ask from that because there's so many places I want to <laughs> dig in. <laughs> like how, so, so what does that, what does that look like from, from your position then as a partner? Are you then going and catalyzing these conversations among, cause that, you know, with your team, like what, what does that look like and how do you bring about your expertise and leadership to this organization? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, so my particular slice of the work is really thinking about theology and culture. So mm-hmm. how, in a sense, how, how do we think about God? How do we think about the world around us? That's theology and culture. Uh, and how does one shape the other? Mm. And and really, it's a learning uh, position. I mean, learning is my job and helping other people in their learning. And I guess what strikes me is... Um, I don't, I, I don't think you actually learn at scale. Um, you know, I mean, hmm. it's a, maybe it's a bit of a rabbit, rabbit trail, but do you remember when MOOCs were really big? If you've yeah. heard about like education, like massively Definitely, open right. online courses, MOOC MOOCs. And this was going to be the next big thing. Like we're going to teach, you know, we're no longer going to teach a uh, hundred students in a classroom, computer science. We're going to put that course online and millions of people will be able to learn computer science. Well, you may notice you are not hearing about MOOCs anymore. <laughs> And it's because they really don't work um, against all expectations. Now, that's not to say
say some people have not learned valuable things through these courses that are now online. And we all know, I mean, the reason we're doing a podcast is there is something about this podcast format that's really good for listening and learning. But it doesn't seem like it scales in the way you would think. And and that's that's after all just teaching. That's It's almost like training, like mm. giving people stuff you already know is training. But what I'm trying to do is learning where I don't even know, like working with one of our EIRs on cryptocurrency. I mean, you can go learn the basics of cryptocurrency online, but what's the spiritual significance of this? What kind of communities does it create? In what ways does it foster human flourishing? In what ways does it really undermine what it is to be human if we really were to build these systems out and start using them in our daily lives? There's nowhere to go, right, to learn that yeah. uh, in, in, at scale. And so I think what, what I am realizing I have to do is actually go very deep with a few people and then try to turn whatever I've learned into something that many people can access. So um, it's, but the actual learning is like very, very artisanal. <laughs> That's mm. like a really overused word, but, but it's like very one-on-one it's reading this big, thick book called The Great Transformation that, um, you know, is very challenging. And much of it is not relevant, but I don't know which parts aren't relevant. So it's it's going deep rather than broad is the only way to do my job. Uh, and that's and really hard the to do time, these days. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, because of my own wiring, in fact. Like, I find I'm so much more willing to just browse than to actually read and learn. But that's the only way I make any progress is by not, not browsing, but really going deep. I love that. And that's so needed, especially in our, in our day and age of people responding to sound bites. And, you know, it's like, you didn't even read the article. You didn't even, and they're just running off of assumptions. This idea of my father-in-law, I remember he explained it really, he has this massive library. It's literally like I, I can't even explain how huge wow. his library is. And, and every time wow. he has doctorate, you know, people with PhDs and everyone coming into his library, the number one, like, and this is, it was fascinating. Everyone who doesn't have a PhD basically comes and asks, did you read all of these? Huh. But, but huh. when a PhD comes in, they don't even ask that question. Right. And they don't ask it because the PhDs know, they know so much about a very narrow very slice area. that they're right. like, the more they knew about that, the more they realized that they, how much they don't know about everything else. Yeah. Right. And how, yeah. Much, how many of us That's think right. we're experts in so oh many areas when it's all surface level? Yes. Yes. And I, I think you have to choose a few things, go really deep on them. And what I try to do, I start a lot of books, but I, I don't finish many because for one thing, especially books written these days, honestly, they are written for a market that skims. Yep. And so as an author, all your incentives are to put your good stuff in the first 50 pages, which <laughs> in, incidentally is also the Kindle preview, like you, yeah. cause you want to hook people. Yeah. It's very rare that the last third of a book is as worthwhile as the first third. Um, though in my own books, I really try to make the last third like worth for the, the 10% of people who make it to the end. I want them to say, thank you. <laughs> you didn't just throw in the fluff at the end. But what I do is I, I start lots, lots of books. I, I skim the whole thing. I mean, before I read any book, I just skim through the whole thing. I take about maybe 10 minutes to like page through. It's amazing how much you can get from a book just from 10 minutes of paging through. Mm. And then I read the first few chapters. And, and at that point, I have to decide like t- life is short. 
I'm not going to be able to read most books. So most books at that point, I'm like, okay, I kind of know what this is doing. I'm going to set it aside. If I ever need this book, I'll come back and really dive in. But on the other hand, if I find one that I feel like is just really profound. Um, so the one I was reading before Polanyi is by this uh, living German uh, Catholic theologian, um, Robert Spemann, called, uh, I think it's called uh, What Are Persons or What Is a Person hmm. or something like that. Um, it's a philosophical inquiry into, into personhood. And I read like five pages and I thought, this is incredibly deep, incredibly durable. Like what he's doing is of, of timeless importance. And I have no idea if I'll ever use it, but it's worth going the distance with this guy. And, um, and I read it very slowly because it's very challenging, challenging reading. Um, but I commit because I figure something's going to happen to me and in me as I just uh, let the author, if, if it's an author really worth listening to, wherever they take me is in the long run going to be helpful to me. And I, I can't do that with very many books. So I can only do that with the ones that I'm really sure are really worth going deep on. Now, that book that you just mentioned, is it a newer book? The person? Spamon, I'm I'm looking for it next to my shelf. I can't see where it is. It's uh yeah, it's written in the nineteen nineties, I think. It was written in German, then translated by the British ethicist, ethicist Oliver O'Donovan uh, in the early two thousands. Yeah, so it's a relatively recent um, not long. It's only like 160 pages, but they are dense pages. Well, <laughs> what's the name of the book again? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, we're both what? interested now. Yeah, we are. I'm like, what are persons? Because what is a person yeah. here? I'm pulling it up uh, thanks to the magic of technology. Even as I'm speaking to you, that oh, the name of it is actually just persons. Persons, <laughs> and the subtitle is a really interesting subtitle: the difference between someone and something. Uh, wow. Okay, so, so that is fascinating. So you already uh, you had me at crypto. I mean, <laughs> for those listening, uh, I don't think I delved in for there for, I dialed in pretty, pretty, uh, aggressively for a while. Huh. And huh. the scariest piece to me with cryptocurrency is where it overlaps with AI. Oh, interesting. Uh, say more. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So, <clears throat> I mean, you know, the smartest people I know and some of the, um, some of the more interesting reading and different white papers and things in the crypto world for me were the ones that had to do with AI because how over how AI overlaps with personhood and you know yeah. the potential of all that mess is is fascinating and scary. To <laughs> and what happens? So well, that is interesting. And and then I think a really interesting question is what happens when you unleash. Whatever AI is going to be on the, the distinctive thing about cryptocurrency is it removes intermediating institutions. So when you think about money, uh, money has always required governments to uh, secure the money, right? To sort of guarantee yeah. this this debt, this instrument is legal for payment of all debts, public and private. That's what it, you know, at least used to say on every dollar bill. And who says, well, it's a human institution, the government, right? And the point of cryptocurrency is to actually remove those intermediating institutions so that transactions can happen with a very high degree of confidence and trust without having to have a trusted institution between people. But what if on the other end of it is not another person, uh, but an AI uh, simulation? Hmm. And 
I'll, I'll give you my take on this, which is uh, we should be very worried about AI, but not because of what it will be able to do, not because of what it will, will do, but because of what it won't be able to do, but we won't be able to see that it can't do it. <laughs> and what I mean by that is AI, I don't actually believe we're ever going to get what we call general artificial intelligence. That is intelligence that's, that's like our intelligence. It's always going to be a simulation, sometimes a very effective one along certain dimensions, but it's never going to be anywhere near as good as an actual human being at caring about the things that human beings care about. But we are going to be very tempted to turn over to these machine learning based uh, systems, um, turn over decision-making power that, uh, persons used to exercise, we'll just let the machine decide. Um, and and it, it actually is not going to do it in a way that honors human beings. Mm. Um, and, and then you put that into a system like a crypto-based system where there is no institution, there's no Federal Reserve Bank, there's no banker uh, looking over that transaction. Um, I mean, one really obvious example is you're applying for a loan. And um, you have a, a history of whether you've paid back your loans on time and so forth and who you are and other factors that might influence what kind of credit risk you are. And if we turn over the decision about whether to give you a loan or not to a crypto-based, uh, machine learning-based kind of algorithm, you might say, what's going to happen is some people are going to be denied loans um, ultimately based on characteristics like race, ethnicity, um, whether they were lucky or unlucky and who, the, who their parents were, not actually based on whether they're trustworthy, but uh, it's actually going to reinforce social stigma and systems of social exclusion that we already have when people are running the show. But once machines are running the show, they won't even care. They won't even know. And it's really, it is risky. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, it makes sense to me. Yeah. I was I trying. I feel like we can talk about this forever, though. I, and, and Daniel's already looking at me going, pointing to his watch. So I have one <laughs> sorry, comment. Sorry. I have one comment, which may open up more. So sorry, Daniel. And that is, I was trying to, I was actually trying to explain algorithms to um, my parents this past weekend. Mm. And uh -huh. I said, well, um, it's kind of like screw tape letters, except it's like, Better than Wormwood. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you should wow. ever say better than Wormwood. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Better but, in quotes. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it is scary. And yeah. I use the election and a bunch of different stuff. Like, hey, yeah. they're basically showing you what you love or what you hate in order. Yes. Echo yes. All right. All right. Yes. All right. Wow. Man. And wow. yeah, I'm like holding myself back so much. <laughs> Because all right, I'll I'm ask the third like question. Blue I'll mind, third question. yeah, deep mind, and everything they're doing, and yeah. Anyway, yes, let's go back to the questions. We'll have all to right. have Andy back on and just talk about AI and technology and algorithms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gross. All right, all right, all right, all right. What is one or two things that you must do every day other than read the Bible? I'll tell you the really important one that's pretty new um, that came out that sort of emerged for me while I was writing the book, The TechWise Family. Um, and it's it's so simple, but it's to go out of doors first thing every day. So I wake up in the morning and I go downstairs and for an, a number of years now, I, I really had been leaving my phone downstairs. So that that discipline was already in place. But what I realized is I was ma I make tea kind of first thing in the morning. That's actually the very first thing I do, get the tea started. <laughs> and then I would pick up my phone. And I'd start scrolling through. 
And of course I would intend to pray eventually, but first let's just see what happened on Twitter and what's mm-hmm. in the email and so forth. And I just realized this was not healthy. And so I thought, okay, what, what a habit am I going to introduce to displace that habit? And I thought what I need to be doing is, is stepping outside. And this has become such a, an important discipline for me. So I wake up, I start the tea, I open the front door and I, we, we just live in a house and kind of a little town. Um, so I'm not stepping out into the, you know, the Rocky mountains or anything. I just step out onto my kind of front steps and some days it's cold. Sometimes it's, some days it's warm and humid. Some days it's raining. Some days it's snowing. Um, some days the, the sky is in, incredibly clear. Sometimes it's cloudy and I just sort of breathe and look up and around and this has been the most, it's embarrassing like how simple it is, but it's been so revolutionary in my life. And my, I, my phone is still plugged in, still blank. I don't, haven't looked at it yet. Mm. And instead I'm just being a creature in this big world and I'm being very small, you know, kind of in my own house, I feel important, <laughs> yeah. but even just one step out, I'm like, oh, neighbors, sky, cosmos, like stars, the moon at different phases at different times of the month. Um, I'll just tell you one more thing about it, which is when I was in my twenties, early twenties, I somehow got into the habit, um, a good habit of every morning I would wake up and the first thing I would say aloud would be, thank you God for this day. And for many years that became just ingrained, wake up, feet hit the floor. Thank you God for this day. Sometime in the last 10 years, and this is totally related to having gotten a smartphone, I think, I had stopped saying that Mm. without intending to stop saying, I just had become, uh, it just wasn't happening anymore. And the first day I went outside, I just instinctively said, thank you God for this day. (laughs) And it took me about two weeks to really make it a habit. Two weeks in which like you could feel the tug of the phone, like calling to be like, Andy, I've got something interesting to show you, you know, something important. And and I went down after about two weeks of, of resisting that uh, successfully, but, but a feeling of resistance, like having to kind of push that back. And I kind of looked at my phone out of the corner of my eye and sort of heard that little whisper of, well, you could pick me up. And, and instead I have this feel, I suddenly I had this feeling of like aversion, like revulsion, like no way. Why would I do, why would I do that first thing rather than go outside? And ever since it's just been like, I, I couldn't hardly stop doing it now, but it has been the most helpful thing for me to take up as a daily practice. That's good. That's good. So how, how long do you spend outside? Is it just like a quick breath? <laughs> yeah. Do you it's yell anything? Not- <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> it's, it's not long. Like, I don't know. It depends on how nice it a morning it is, but, mm. uh, you know, this, we're talking in December here. It's not that nice outside. I walk out I'm like, Oh, it's cold. You know, take a few breaths. Uh, so I don't pretend it's like this incredible contemplative moment, but it, it, it can be three seconds. It can be two minutes, but it's not usually long. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, even that little bit is so different from just staying indoors with my own thoughts and life and glowing things. That's good. That's good. No, Andy, uh, what is, what does leadership in your home look like? Well, we talked about the TechWise family and I think, I, I, I feel like for many men, um, the big challenge of our lives is to stop abdicating, (laughs) uh, abdicating the sense of, of relinquishing leadership, uh, passivity. And I would say that 
that for me, this is not the only area, but for me, becoming the leader in our family for wisdom with how I use devices, I'm a, I am quite a geek. I love my technology. I've always loved technology. Uh, I've loved computers since I was a kid. Um, and my wife, ironically, my wife is a scientist. She works with incredibly high technology every day. She's a research physicist and builds these incredibly elaborate apparatuses. And, and you know, uh, but she has a very sane relationship to this stuff. Mm. And leadership for me in the home has been actually being the one who is proactively making healthy choices on behalf of our family about when we use these devices and when we don't. And you know, being the first one to put my phone to bed at night and being the first, being the one who turns down, we actually turn off the electric lights at their time and light candles so that we have dinner by candlelight, no, not even electric light devices on. Um, and yeah, just being the one who, who rather than sort of being dragged along by my wife to have a face-to-face conversation or, you know, to really pay attention is actually the one modeling that mm. has been, it's, I had to be very intentional. It hasn't come naturally, but, um, I have become way more intentional about it. That's really good. That's really good. How about, um, so that's, how about with kids? What, what does that look like? You know, I think with our kids... Because how old are they again? So, well, they're now 18 and 21. So they're no longer children. They're both in college as of, uh, as of this fall. Um, and so, and that's a new stage and probably I'm still figuring that out. Mm. But I would say, um, when they were at home as teenagers, the real, uh, especially on this technology front specifically, which is such a big deal for teenagers inevitably, it was finding a way to be grace, gracious about setting these, helping them set the boundaries that we all share. So mm-hmm. uh, it's so easy to get into rulemaking, <laughs> and I'm I'm a rule I'm a rule follower. I'm a rule liker. Like I like order. Uh, you know, they say that on the Muppets, there's order Muppets and chaos Muppets. <laughs> like all the all the Muppets actually turn out to be one or the other. So yeah. <laughs> um, Bert is a chaos Muppet, right? And Ernie's an order Muppet. Yeah. Obviously the trash can uh, Oscar. You know. So I'm an order Muppet. Um, and I could easily impose that on my kids. But what they need me to do is find ways to invite them into the life they're meant for rather than dictate to them that life. And I... I had some, I, I've had some moments of both, but my good days are when I find a way to kind of graciously invite them into the life that they actually want, um, rather than sort of dictating it. I love that. That's awesome. All right. Let's go to the last question, which should be fairly poignant since you have uh, children <laughs> right between yeah. us. Uh, what would you tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead? Oh man, it is poignant because my son uh, is graduating from college and he's going to be an intern in the campus ministry that he's been involved in in college. And Mm -hmm. uh, so he's like taking on, and I did, I was, my first 10 years out of college were campus ministry. So it's, it's really, um, it's wonderful to see him choosing that at least for an internship season. Um, I think two things, uh, don't be in a hurry <laughs> and don't be afraid. So don't be in a hurry. Um, if there was one thing I was, uh, 
from almost day one. Uh, one of the first pictures my parents have of me once I was up and walking is of me in pants that have pockets. And apparently at like age three, I was so excited to have pockets in my pants because I wanted to grow up. And I have my, like my hands stuck in my pockets with this great sense of pride. Like I have pants with pockets. Um, I was just, I was in such a hurry to grow up. I was in such a hurry to be recognized. I was in such a hurry to have responsibility, to prove I was worthy of responsibility. And um, I now have a lot of responsibility <laughs> and am, am recognized in some ways. And I now realize like what I most needed was a kind of a patience and learning first just to be rather than to do mm. learning first to be in relationship with people w without having to be in, in leadership over people. Um, so I would say, don't be in a hurry. Uh, and then I just, uh, there were so many things I was anxious about, uh, when I was in my, when I was 20, um, I mean, <laughs> we could do a, a whole podcast series, like a whole a whole season <laughs> on all the things I was anxious about that that took up such large uh, chunks of my attention and energy and mm. imagination and um, and you know some of those things I was afraid of actually came to pass and mm. others of them have not happened in any way like I imagined and all of them were just total distractions from. Um, what God was actually preparing to do in my life. So, uh, I, I really, I was so much more fearful than I let on, um, as a, as a young man. And now I, I actually feel like I know a lot more of what there is to fear now. I mean, I'm 50 years old now. And I, I think I have a clearer sense of like, what's at stake in the world, what our opposition is in the world. And by that, I mean, above all the principalities and powers that are at war in the world. Um, but I would just say to my 20 year old self, don't do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Hmm. That's so good. Andy, thanks for your time and uh, your, your thought. I think one of the greatest gifts that you offer in your writing and, and in the work that you're doing, doing right now is the deep thought right, is the deep thought on behalf of a lot of us. And, and I hope that that then leads everyone else to engage in deeper thought as well. But thank you for, for modeling the way and, yeah. and for taking the time with us. Well, thank you for the invitation to think out loud with you all. It's really, really a gift. Thank you. Good deal. I mean, a lot of times I think what leaders do is they kind of go to the well and they bring... Hmm what's down there back up for us. So thank you for doing that and so many very important issues of our day. Uh, well, thanks. Pray for me if you think of me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Andy. <laughs> thank you both. Wow. That was, <laughs> that, was <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah. I just, I, I'm going to buy that book persons, the difference between someone and something and hopefully uh, I'll be yeah. able to work, work through it. Well, <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it really is. Uh, it's a privilege as a, and I think it's a responsibility as a leader for those listening that, you know, somebody like Andy gets to do it for, for people on a broad, broad level. Mm -hmm. But I think we do have a responsibility as leaders to go to the well. Yes. 
Completely, completely. And talking about the well, uh, one one of the things that we do at Lifeway Leadership is not just put on events, but we are really passionate about coaching and helping you develop a plan for change. So in light of that, if there's um, if you're in the California area, Orange County specifically, or are you on a reason to go out there March 13 to 15, we have our pipeline, our nine. What what is it? What is it, Todd? 90 days to change our blueprint coaching. It's really, I mean, you could do it as 90 days or you could say, hey, man, I've got a really big change that might take me a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Regardless of those two scenarios, we are going to give you a framework, an outline, and walk you through so that you and your team can walk away with a real implementable plan with next steps um, for your next 30, 60, 90 days from now. Yeah, so just text the word blueprint to the number 888-111 and you'll get more information about that. And the last thing before you hit the off button, uh, we wanted to announce that Rainer on Leadership is now a member of the Lifeway Leadership <laughs> Podcast <laughs> Network. So this, if you haven't yet checked it out, this is hosted by Tom Rainer and yeah, Jonathan Howe. Yeah, we thought we help him out <laughs> a little bit. He was struggling. Yeah. Struggling to get by, so, you know. <laughs> Oh, we can help him out. Oh man, it's it's a great podcast. Oh, absolutely, twice a week, just like us, and just look up Rainer on Leadership, your favorite podcasting app, and subscribe because it's a great one. 